Welcome to the podcast series, episode 52, part two. High conflict separation in the context of child welfare services. Practice considerations. The podcast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the particle archives. This podcast will provide practice considerations for workers encountering high conflict separations in the context of child welfare. Unlike other custody disputes, high conflict separations are unlikely to be resolved by alternative dispute resolution or mediation. Unfortunately, that leaves these cases to be settled by the courts in conjunction with child welfare workers. However, the win-lose focus in the courts often exasperates existing issues and increases conflict. Research with child welfare workers has found that high conflict cases are viewed by workers as challenging, time-consuming, and emotionally draining. The workers in this study reported that it was difficult to determine the extent of the impact of the conflict on the child and that the parents pressured workers to take a side against the other parent. Surveys of child welfare workers in Ontario are finding that workers have at least one case on their caseload that is considered high conflict, with some workers reporting multiple cases being given to them because of their experience in working with high conflict families. A pervasive concern by legal professionals like lawyers, judges, and custody assessors is that child welfare services do not take allegations made in high-conflict custody situations seriously. On the other hand, child welfare workers are faced with situations where parents might be making multiple allegations against each other and the worker is left to distinguish between many non-protection concerns to determine if there is an actual protection issue within these allegations. To further complicate the situation, emotional harm and risk of emotional harm are difficult to prove and the presence of a child welfare worker can exasperate the conflict. So, when should child welfare workers get involved? Houston and Bala, in 2016, interviewed child welfare workers, their supervisors, agency lawyers, judges, children's lawyers, mediators, and access assessors, and determined that cases involving concurrent protection concerns, failure to engage voluntarily in the CPA, failure to reduce conflict despite agency involvement, and clear evidence of emotional harm to the child should be brought before the court as protection applications. If there is no concurrent maltreatment concern, then workers should carefully assess the situation without allowing themselves to be influenced by the fact that it is just a custody dispute. If workers do not recognize their own internal prejudices with regards to high-conflict cases, they might only attend to information that supports their preset conclusion, that this is a case of only custody dispute and misinformation that indicates that the child is experiencing emotional harm or is at serious risk of emotional harm. Complaints against workers. By remaining impartial and not aligning with either parent over the other, workers are frequently the targets of complaints by high-conflict parents. Workers should not let the threat of a complaint stop them from working with the family to ensure the safety of the child. Instead, Workers should focus on thoroughly documenting all interactions with the family in detail. While workers are required to case note all client interactions, special care should be taken with high-conflict cases as workers' case files in these cases might be subpoenaed. Thorough documentation of the actions of the parents and the worker will help workers when faced with legal proceedings and in responding to any complaints made to the agency. Thinking Critically 
Worker, Supervisor, and Organizational Biases To make conscious decisions in practice, it is important to assess personal biases. Thinking about a case involving parents in high conflict, how do you react? Do you react because of your own experiences as a child or adult? Or perhaps do you have negative reactions towards one parent? Or do you have a reaction because of previous cases involving parents in high conflict? Think about your experiences and biases and assess whether they are impacting your decision or your practice with the family. Analyze whether your plan to move forward is based on the evidence in front of you versus your biases. Working with parents. To prevent workers from being seen as taking the side of one parent over the other, when possible, workers should send the exact same communication to both parents. This includes letters, reports, and other documents. Further, though both parents can be sources of conflict in the parenting relationship, often one parent can be seen as the main source of the ongoing conflict. As mentioned above, if there is a power imbalance between the couple, either financial or social, or a desire for retaliation due to the end of the relationship, then there is an increased risk of conflict perpetuated primarily by one parent. In these situations, workers must carefully attend to the pattern of the disputes to determine which parent is in need of more intervention. Parents undergoing high-conflict separation might experience feelings of fear, shame, loneliness, sadness, anger, or worry. In order to work effectively with these parents, the first step might be to help parents recognize their own feelings. For instance, what are they fearful of? How realistic are those fears? Are a parent's recent actions the result of anger? Are there anger management strategies that they can use to behave more appropriately when faced with these stressful situations? These conversations must be undertaken sensitively because parents might feel targeted or persecuted by the courts or social service agencies. Particularly for parents who are experiencing anger, accepting their own role in high-conflict separations can be difficult. Parents will actively attempt to get workers on their side with one parent over the other and might become angry if rejected. However, it is important that workers remain objective and always focus on the safety and well-being of the child, not on the best interests of either parent. Parents in high-conflict struggle with recognizing their own behavior and how their own behavior impacts the child will instead be inclined to blame any negative impacts of the child on the other parent. Pay attention to the use of the terms always and never by parents. These words can indicate that the parent might not be entirely factual in their answers. Probe for exceptions. For example, a father might report that he has never missed a visitation time, but upon further inquiry, he admits that if he has to work late, visits might be postponed, but he does not consider this a cancellation. It takes time and multiple conversations with parents in these high-pressure situations to understand the perceptions of both parents. Sayini in 2012 recommended taking an attachment-focused approach in response to parents within high-conflict situations. This approach requires helping parents achieve attachment reparation and in new attachment scripts, so parents are no longer tied to the wrongs of the past. Part of this process requires parents to recognize what is motivating their actions. Baker and colleagues in 2014 proposed three questions to determine if parents might not be acting with regards to their children's best interests. One, is anger or a desire to punish or get revenge against your ex playing a role in your legal strategy? Two, are you unreasonably fearful of your ex's ability to properly care for the children because of your own need for control, your bias, or your own history? Three, 
Is your current emotional state, like sadness, loneliness, fear of being alone, or similar negative emotions motivating you? Baker and colleagues in 2014 recommended that if the answer to any of these questions is yes, then parents might require counseling or other therapeutic services before attempting to renegotiate custody agreements. Instead, parents should be guided by their desire for a positive relationship with their child. Questions to guide that question include, one, where do you want to be in five years with respect to your relationship with your children? Two, do you feel hopeful that they will have this experience? Three, if not, what do you see as the major barriers? Four, what needs to change for you to reach your parenting goals? Self-care. High-conflict cases are stressful, time-consuming, and frustrating for workers. Combining with the complaints that parents might bring up against workers and the lack of direction by agencies on how to respond to high-conflict cases, workers are faced with a stressful situation. Self-care, frequent debriefing with supervisors, and recognizing the limits of available interventions to respond to the entrenched views of high-conflict parents will help workers handle these cases without becoming overwhelmed or burned out. Working with parents in cases of intimate partner violence and child custody disputes. As noted above, child custody dispute cases that are investigated by child welfare services are more likely to involve a female victim of domestic violence. Providing services to these families is particularly challenging as most courts are not equipped to handle both custody dispute and domestic violence cases. Custody disputes tend to be handled in family court, while domestic violent charges are handled in criminal court. Integrated domestic violence courts have shown promise as a way of bridging this gap, but at present only one such court exists in Canada. Unfortunately, custody evaluations do not consider the specific needs of domestic violence cases and treat all cases in the same way. Given that the greatest danger occurs when the relationship is terminated, the present situation provides a challenge to child welfare workers seeking to provide services to survivors of, who are court-mandated to provide access to the abuser which places their children at risk of exposure to domestic violence. The situation is further complicated by the lack of understanding of the impact of exposure to intimate partner violence on children by family court judges and court mediators' custody recommendations. Joint custodial arrangements and shared parenting are increasing in Canada. The prevailing assumption is that this is in the best interest of the child to have contact with both parents, and if one parent does not comply, then they are being seen as being in contempt of court orders. It can unfortunately fall to child welfare workers to attempt to educate family court judges on the dangers of intimate partner violence for parent victims and their children to prevent custody arrangements that increase the risk of violence. Where possible, access should be facilitated by a third party, such as a grandparent or supervised access agency, to limit the access of the perpetrator to the victim. In cases of extensive domestic violence, joint custody and co-parenting will result in increased of risk to the parent victim and might impair their ability to care for the children and should not be considered as in the best interests of the child. Assessments such as Saini and Birnbaum's 2015 Supervised Visitation Checklist can be used to determine when supervised visitation is necessary in making custody disputes and decisions due to the risk of a parent perpetrator. The amount of physical domestic violence is also not the best indicator of the level of conflict post-separation. Hardesty and colleagues in 2016 found that domestic violence survivors experience coercive control from their partner post-divorce. This study highlights the importance of attending to post-separation harassment and fear in domestic violence situations, 
not only the presence or absence of physical abuse. Responding to parental alienation. When talking with the children about their reasons for rejecting one parent, ensure that this, their statements are the result of their own observations and that they are not solely repeating what they have heard. For instance, a child might state, everyone knows mom is crazy, that's why I don't want to see her, without ever having witnessed any behavior that would cause them concern, which makes it less likely this statement should be taken at face value. Ask for details. What events think make you think your mom is crazy? Who is saying your mom is crazy? What are you basing your opinions on? Parents making false accusation of parental alienation against their partners tend to use stereotypes that already exist in society, such as the hysterical mother or the angry father. These stereotypes are then encouraged through confirmatory biases, such that we only pay attention to behaviors that confirm our initial beliefs and ignore behaviors that might make us question our conclusions. Further, these allegations might be based on a grain of truth. For instance, the hysterical mother might have been overheard to cry in a bathroom by her children after signing her divorce papers, or the angry father might only yell during sporting events on TV. Children who are unjustifiably alienated from one parent are less able to critique the favored parent or find strengths in the alienated parent. In conversations with the child, the child is unable to articulate in an age-appropriate way strengths and weaknesses of both parents, it is more probable that parental alienation is at play. Several models of intervention have been developed to address parental alienation. Warshock's Family Bridges Program, Overcoming Barriers Family Camp by Sullivan and colleagues, Friedlander and Walter's Multimodal Family Intervention. However, the evidence base that these programs work is not yet concrete. Key program components that might be associated with successful reunification include having therapeutic meetings with the parents and the children and introducing sequential contact with the alienated parent. Sequential contact involves beginning with written contact before moving up to online and in-person contact to allow the child time to re-establish a positive parent-child relationship. The role of child welfare agencies in responding to high-conflict cases. One of the challenges faced by workers is the lack of interagency guidance on how to respond to high-conflict cases. This results in confusion not only for child welfare workers, but also for lawyers and judges overseeing custody and access cases in courts. Lack of direction from the government on information sharing between the courts and child welfare services results in a courtroom delays and serves to increase the length of time that families spend in litigation. As well, Responsibility for managing the family's issues is left up to each situation. Workers report that courts expect them to manage and resolve family conflicts, while legal professionals report that child welfare workers expect the courts to resolve family conflicts that are beyond the scope of the justice system. Specific directives are required from each province or territory on responding to high-conflict situations, and in the absence of these directives, organizations need to fill in the gap and provide guidance to child welfare agencies and workers on how and when to respond to high-conflict cases. The specific role of a child welfare worker compared to other service providers in high-conflict cases must be articulated to avoid role confusion, and child welfare workers and other professionals must be provided with the training necessary to respond effectively to these cases. Only about one-third of child welfare workers in Ontario report receiving training on high-conflict separation cases. Further, as most agencies do not have a specific policy on interagency collaboration in high-conflict cases, responses to high-conflict custody disputes can vary by team or supervisor. In conclusion, parents who engage in prolonged legal disputes 
usually involve multiple service systems, including child protection services, judicial services, children's school, and mental health services, tying up valuable community resources. Increases in interagency collaboration could help prevent duplication of services, though in some resource-scarce jurisdictions, child welfare is the only social service provider available, making this an issue that requires prompt attention by policymakers and agency leaders. You have been listening to the Partcast series, episode 52, part two, high conflict separation in the context of child welfare services, practice considerations. The Partcast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a Canadian membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information on today's episode or other episodes in the Partcast series, please visit www.partcanada.org.